Good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you all here. My name is Derek Hook, and I'm a lecturer in the Institute of Social Psychology. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here tonight to the first in a series of talks on the theme of psychoanalysis and society. Are you hearing feedback, or is it just me? Uh, the topic of tonight's talk is bodies, and we're fortunate enough to have Susie Orbach here to deliver the talk. This is the first in a series of uh, talks. There'll be a follow-up lecture in February next year. The Psychoanalysis and Society lectures are um, hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology. They're organized by Psychoanalysis at LSE, and they've been generously supported by the LSE's annual fund. Psychoanalysis at LSE is a group of researchers who are interested in using psychoanalysis as a distinctive means of investigating a series of pressing social problems. If you'd like to know a little bit more about the activities of psychoanalysis at LSE, please do have a look at our website. You can access that from the main LSE website or indeed from the Institute of Social Psychology's website. I'm also very happy to be able to introduce Susie Orbach. Susie and her work is well known to most of you, if not all of you. She is one of the most well-known and well-respected therapists and psychoanalysts working in Britain today. She's a former Guardian columnist. She was a visiting professor in sociology here at LSE for 10 years. She's also the co-founder of the Women's Therapy Center in London, and of course, the author of numerous books. She uh, wrote Fat is a Feminist Issue, which is a bestseller, she was also the author of On Eating, The Impossibility of Sex, and more recently, the book that we'll be discussing in some detail tonight, Bodies, published earlier this year. Her work has been at the forefront of thinking issues of the body image, the politics of eating, and what we might call the difficulties of embodiment in culture. For tonight's talk, we'd like to keep things fairly informal, um, and what Susie and I have opted to do is to have a discussion between us so we'll chat for about an hour, and then after that, we'd like to encourage some questions from the floor. So please do ask any questions you may want, and please do join me in giving a big warm welcome to Susie in a way of saying thank you for coming. me, Derek. I'm not starting this. Derek is starting it. But there's the most extraordinary um, document here, Guide to Chairing Public Meetings in the Event of Disorder. <laughs> and what's absolutely wonderful is that it's operationalized how you're meant to deal with disruption. So heckling is allowed, but not if it continually disrupts the speaker. And you have to repeat certain things that start with sir or madam, which I think is really unusual for LSE. And you have to tell them that they're disrupting and then repeat it twice and all sorts of things. Anyway, I was intrigued by this because this is new. This seems to me very, very new. Okay. I'll shut up and proceed to the body rather than the body of the meeting. We had a chat about babies beforehand, and hopefully there'll be some baby questions to come. Um, we had joked and said that that could be the theme of today's lecture generally, but 
let's start with some more general questions that relate to your book. And one of the impressions one gets after reading the book is that, in your experience as a clinician, there are very few presenting problems in the clinic today. Is it you and me together in our bodies, or what? Yeah, maybe you should look no, away from one another. Please, no, don't do that. Very few presenting problems in today's clinic that don't have a bodily dimension of some sort. So that poses up a series of further questions, but my kind of opening question to you is a statement you make in the book. And you say, there is no such thing as an already or pre-given body. The body is made. One can't assume that we just naturally inhabit bodies. This, to many people, I think, would seem to be a fairly counterintuitive view of the body. So why is it that there's no natural fit between us and our bodies? And what does it mean to speak of the impossibility of assuming a body, impossibility of embodiment? Well, I don't think I would say there's no such thing as a fit, but I would say that there is a fit between us and our bodies, but the forms of fitting are culturally created, mm. inscribed, and experienced. So, of course, we have fits with our body. What I'm seeing in the consulting room is people who don't come in with body difficulties, may come in with issues of loss, bereavement, struggles with parents, lovers, but inevitably, a piece of what they will say is uh, there's something wrong with their bodies, and there will be an assumption that I agree with them that there's something wrong with their bodies. So that's what that reference was to. So what I think we're seeing in bodies today is that the, the body is, can I put it this way, ill-fitting. It's the body, if you like, and what's made me think about the body being made is that it's made under conditions which at this moment in history create for many, many people a body instability rather than a body stability. Mm -hmm. And that body instability opens up a lens to look at how we get a body. So psychoanalysis, the field in which I live, is very interested and accepts the notion of how you get a mind. Right? We don't we problematize how you get a mind. Everybody in the field, whether you think about it in a Freudian or a Jungian or a, even a CBT way, you know that the issue is how you get a mind. It's a very interesting question. And if you observe babies, you can see how babies develop a mind, or at least you can speculate how babies develop a mind. But nobody's, well, the question of how we get a body from the raw DNA is not something that's been up for discussion, because bodies within my field have been, this is a very lengthy answer to your question, I hope that's okay, but it's my way of giving a talk without giving a talk. Um, Bodies in my field have been looked at as being either a place of symptom. In other words, you have a conflict in your mind, you don't know how to handle it, so you get a psychological symptom. This is where Freud started off. You get a paralysis of a limb, or you speak in a foreign tongue, or something really odd. And that's the origins of psychoanalysis is you get your body is simply a vehicle for the mind, right? And I've been very interested to think, well, what if you don't look at the body as a vehicle for the mind, but you look at it as a body? Then what do you need to understand about 
how we get to have the bodies that we have and have our phenomenological experience of the body, whether that feels comfortable, ill-fitting, terrifying, as an object, something that we always have to attend to, and so, and so on and so forth. What was the second question? Second bit of the question? No, I, I just wanted to respond to that. I think one of the, the strongest arguments in the book, um, which, which does have a nice counterintuitive sense, was the argument that today it's not problematic to suggest that one psychology is a kind of built, uh, layered set of residues of experience. Psychology is made over a kind of experiential period. But we don't think about bodies like that. So that's a kind of intriguing argument, and I want to come back to that. But I also wanted to ask this question. Um, by the end of the book, you've done a, a wonderful job of denaturalizing the body, mm -hmm. making the point in a variety of different ways how the body is always culturally mediated. Um, you've got a nice quote where you say, bodies have always been an expression of a specific period, geography, religious, and cultural place. And when I read that, I started thinking about foot binding, which may, on, may not have been one of your examples. So my question then is if various means of mediating our bodies have always taken place in history, mm -hmm. why is it that this is more of a problem today than at other periods? Why is body instability of some sort more precarious today than it has been in previous eras. I think it's if a the body's always yeah. been culturally mediated. No, it's always been culturally mediated because we know there is no such thing as a body. I mean, there's not a body outside of culture. Even if most of the wild child stuff doesn't exist, some of the wild child stuff tells us that every that, that bodies don't look human. I mean, wild children don't have bodies mm -hmm. that are human mm -hmm. unless they're they don't have it. That's that's mm -hmm. it. So why is it a problem? I think there's a kind of, this probably brings us right into LSE kind of preoccupations because why it's an issue is that what we've seen in the last period and certainly in my lifetime in a very extreme and hyper, hyperized way, if that's a word. We've seen the commercialization of the body at such an extraordinary pitch that, and the body as signal for forms of belonging, which you always had, right? But whereas historically in Britain, let's say, or in England, bodies were really of concern and decoration of the body was really of concern for a very short period of time and maybe for only particular social class, you were marked by your work. I mean, if you were an industrial worker, your body showed that. If you were a seamstress, your body showed that. If you were a washerwoman, your body showed that. If you were uh, you know, a Jew or a, you, you shaved yourself in particular ways. So of course they were always marked, but they, those, that marking was something that was done by group. It wasn't done by global economic forces that offered you a shape and a size and a style that says this is how you can belong in global culture by appropriating a particular kind of body that almost the body as a brand. I don't mean just the body being branded by brands, but mm -hmm. the body as having a brand by having a kind of look about it. And that that is unstable for, for psychoanalytic reasons, which I can discuss with you in a minute, but is because Right now, that brand is very tall and skinny and blonde and sort of in the six-foot variety for women, which is novel. In my day, when I grew up, it was 
there was a, a sort of breach with, with voluptuousness, and it was the beginning of skinniness. Um, and it was also the introduction of a kind of working class body of Twiggy, challenging stuff about the body. But the intensity with which one is then encouraged to produce that body all over the world. And one of the things that we do is we export body hatred. It's one of the hidden exports of the West. And um, it's a very, very profitable industry and I, to do that. So I think it's, it's a, it's, it doesn't provide a form of secure embodiment in a way that, it, I think foot binding was an oppression, but it was a way of positioning yourself. The positioning now is very insecure, very unstable. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure there are bodies there in the beginning to start with, which perhaps is one of your questions you want to ask me. Well, I mean, following on from that, you also make the claim that we're doing away with body variety today. And um, what that made me think of was, I suppose, more anthropological work, scarification of the body, uh, you know, whether it's stretching ears, necks, all of these kinds of things that one can do to a body. So at one level, it seems that, yes, indeed, we are doing away with body variety. And I think some of your comments now are to suggest that one of the problems is a kind of norming, normalization, almost a Foucauldian normalization of the body, where there are certain body images which are increasingly difficult to escape from. But a counter-argument might say, doesn't technology today give us the prospect of a non-homogenous body? And could we not say that we've got the resources and possibilities today for more body diversity than ever before? But yeah, you, in theory you have, but you don't see the websites of the guys who are offering labiaplasties, in case people don't know what that is. That's the transformation of a woman's labia. You don't see the website saying all these different labias are available to you. You see pictures of ordinary labias and what's wrong with them and how they can be corrected to look like this. So when you say technology might allow that, I wonder which bit of technology, because certainly if you go on, um, people rate themselves, right, but in terms of how they fit with what is, a, what is the norm at the moment. I, I, why, would, why would people, why would a 10 centimeter rod inserted into somebody in Beijing or Shanghai be a, a question of body variety? I mean, it's not, it's a, it's a question of homogenization. Mm -hmm. And I think the argument is that we're losing body types and variety at the rate at which we're losing languages. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I don't, I think it's quite serious, frankly. Yeah. Um, there was something else that I was very interested in, and that is you build on the psychoanalytic insight that one only takes on a body in relationship to someone else. And uh, you'll forgive me for the cultural reference, but it made me think of how to look good naked. Because in um, how to look good naked, you've got a very strong example of something which should be a kind of intimate relationship, me, to my body, which is necessarily mediated by someone else. And in How to Look Good Naked, ultimately you only do feel good about your body or looking in a certain way in terms of the gaze of someone else upon you. So I was Are you trying to discuss that with me? Your own personal thing <laughs> no, with the no, no. Okay, all right. I just wasn't sure where you were going, whether okay, the one okay, or the me okay, was okay, a okay. personal or a not. No, okay. no, I just wanted you to say a little bit more about this idea that we assume our bodies in relation to others and how others before us have assumed bodies. Because 
it seems, okay, one step at a time, it's easy enough to say we understand that our bodies are culturally mediated. But what seems another step in the argument is to say that our bodies are mediated by other bodies and other significant people around us in terms of their relationship to bodies. Right. Why is that a problem? You see, I think parents are part of culture. In fact, they're the deliverers of culture in its most intimate ways. You, you experience approval, disapproval, delight, um, joy, censure at a bodily and physical and emotional level in, in your earliest upbringing. That's that, but that isn't, it, that's not separate from culture. No, but I suppose... I mean, I'm not an uncult, I'm not devoid of culture as I parent. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm thinking, or I, I'm in an acting culture as I parent. I'm enacting certain rules that are inscribed. There's no difference between me and culture, really. But truly, a cynic might say, my mother's relationship to her body, why does that have anything to do with me? I mean, indeed, well, my body is, is mediated. Okay, so let's culture, go back. Let's go back to you might, the cynic might say that, but they would also accept that the mother's psychology might have something to do with who they were. So, who they were is also a body who has an idea of their own body and has an idea of the potential body of the baby and that that is conveyed to the baby so that the baby's body is both a representation or an imagining of the, it's an imaginative body that a parent gives to a baby, right? You have to, we still do genderize our babies. We cannot relate to a baby until we know whether it's a girl or a boy, right? It's not possible because it determines almost every relation to it, right? You don't, baby girls are hugged less, they're fed less, they're, they're weaned earlier. I mean, they're extraordinary cross-cultural things that happen around gender and babies. So it's right there the making of the psychological and the physical experience of what it means to have a baby girl or a baby boy, to be seen as a baby girl and a baby boy. And then to take that up and to also take up the body of the parent or parents or nannies or whoever's doing the parenting mm. inside of yourself in the formation of the body. That's no different than what we do with minds. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's still kind I of... I mean, it's very tricky to get your head around. Don't think I understand this. And I've really been struggling with it for a very, very long time. Mm. I still want to use language to describe... Well, I can look at tapes that the colleague has made of mother and baby or, or interactions. I mean, she analyzes a minute, and it takes her a year. I mean, she's got a team, okay, of that. Everything she describes, this is Beatrice Beebe, everything she describes is physical, and the words are physical, but she describes it in psychological terms. And what I want to do is to be able to reinscribe it in terms of what's happening in the development of the forms of embodiment that are happening. Yeah, I suppose what I was battling a little bit with was the distinction between how one's body is treated as an infant or throughout one's life, and how that gives you a mode of embodiment, but more than that, and this seems to be the trickier part, the role of another body as a template for how I am in my body. 
So it's almost as if there's a kind of inheritance okay, how from... Okay, if there is an inheritance, that's the point. You don't need genetics for inheritance. It's as good as genetic. Early environment is very, very powerful. So when they say mothers and babies or fathers and children are just like this, I think if you've been around children, you get it because those are very, very powerful relationships. Let me think of, let me give you a really crude example that's probably embodied. The, the fashion now for having cesareans at eight months, which has been led by um, celebrity culture in the mistaken belief that you won't get a big tummy. I mean, it's absolutely nuts and it's very, it's crazy, right? You can see that the body of the person who decides to follow that, who's not a celebrity, has anxiety around their own body and body image. Of course they want to do right by their baby, but they also want to do right by whatever they consider their body is at the time. And what we can imagine then is that instead of their body having a recovery from labor and being in the kind of ambiance postpartum that means that these two bodies develop together, the, the body of the person who is now a mother as opposed to a body of, right? Because that person has to become a mother and the body of the baby. What you've got is somebody who's frantically then doing sit-ups and they're creating, they have a very anxious body that they're bringing to very early parenting. And so the body that is held, holding the other body, is a body that is an anxious body or has anxiety associated, not just the normal parental anxiety, but has something about fretfulness associated with it. And that will be a body that is taken in by the body of the baby as the most fundamental experience of otherness and bodiness. Does that help at all? Not really. Um, well, there's a, a question that relates to that a little bit. If there are less functional, more problematic ways through which our bodies and body images are mediated, what might be more enabling ways? So the how to look good example, there you have popular culture, a whole series of stereotypical notions, and that's one way of mediating one's body image. Presumably not necessarily the greatest way of doing it. Well, that's, that's come out of an emergency situation. I mean, we've got a public em health emergency in relation to women's bodies, and pretty soon in relation to boys and men's. We just don't talk about it. We talk about it as obesity, or we talk about it as um, anorexia, but we don't actually talk about the mass of women who have a crisis relationship to their bodies, whose bodies are fit somehow. They look okay, but, right? So, um, to me, I found my, my maid lost the track of this question, but these are public policy issues, which is why I'm very pleased to be talking at LSE about this. There are very serious public policy concerns about what it means that mothers, and this is not, this is mothers as social agents, not mothers as to be blamed, are not in a position to pass on stable bodies and invite their babies to have bodies that will be exciting and alive for them, but that will be bodies that have inside of them anxiety. And those, it seems to me, is that because we've got 
a situation where visual culture is so predominant now, and it's new at this level, and it affects us, and we don't even understand how it affects the visual cortex, but we do know it does. It's very, very important that we provide support across the board in a health service that provides health visiting and midwifery and postpartum support, that we help mothers and the next generation have an entitlement to a body. Maybe that anticipates the question I'm going to ask, and that is, what is the priority for a feminist politics of the body today? Christ. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think there is a priority. I think one of the wonderful th things is that people take up all sorts of different things, right? I, I, I'm part of a group called Anybody, and with the Women's Therapy Center Institute in New York, we're about to have, well, we're, not, we're, we're about to bring together it'll be a, a group of body activists uh, around the title of Endangered Species, and which is what we think women's bodies are, and that's what we're really worried about. Um, but within that politics, there will be very different things that we want to create about that. We, I think what I would want to argue is that the commercialization of the body as it is currently going on is a form of violence, and that it's been left out of the debates about violence and women, which have tended to look at violence around the specificities of rape or clitorectomies or those things, and not around the modern forms of internalized body hatred and foot binding that aren't actually foot binding. But, so I think there are a whole range of practices and interventions that we would want to take on. What are you smiling about? No, no, I'm just saying it's a good answer. Um, oh, okay. And um, so I think that's, that's how it goes. There are some of us who will be putting tremendous pressure on magazine editors. There'll be others who will be doing, trying to do legislation to, to stop the 200 photoshopping per image that is in the women's magazines. I mean, it's 200 times between the art directors and the editors. It's, that's not trivial, photoshopping. That is really serious. There are others of us who will want to take on the beauty industry as an exceptionally successful industry, right? And most of it is there based on creating insecurity rather than creating joy, right? I mean, you, you get a growth rate of 14% on a, on a successful beauty industry. I always don't want to say that when there are any economists around because I think they're going to go and invest their money in L'Oreal because it's so incredibly profitable. But there, you know, there are various things, there are various ways that one want, might want to take this on as a feminist politics. Can we ever have an accurate image of our own bodies? Is it the case that we never quite see our bodies as they are? I mean, it's an abiding psychoanalytic theme, this uh, encounter of the subject with the image of themselves in the mirror. It seems almost inevitably um, subject to some kind of distortion. So can we see our bodies in an accurate Well, way? I'm not a Lacanian, so I can't, I can't go that route. It's not that I think it's accurate, because the eyes that we have are so critical and judging at this moment in history. Um, but I think you can get closer to having a sense of your body and quite much further away from it. And um, I think it's quite interesting. I mean, this is one aspect of modern technology that perhaps is what you were fishing for in the beginning that I haven't thought about. Um, but because everybody can see themselves 
on a camera now, on a video camera, you can actually see, even though you're still filtering what you're seeing, you can see something, and it's quite interesting to see whether what you see is what you imagine, whether it pleases you, or whether you imagined it is sort of how you are. I'm not actually sure that God, not that I believe in God, ever made it that we were meant to be looking at ourselves all the time. But there is something interesting about that possibility of a sense of the kind of space you take up or the kind of movements you make or the kind of feel that you might. But I don't know. I, I think that's a very... And I don't think we're just one body. I say, one body. See, I, here's, here's the problem with what, what I'm trying to argue. <laughs> You're telling me the, the problem with your argument. Okay, anyways, before... Okay, well, the problem the with what I'm trying to argue is I think if in postmodern theory there's a real celebration of multiple bodies and flexibility and ain't that great. And that's absolutely smashing as long as you're not a clinician and you see the pain and the trouble and the upset of people feeling they don't know about their bodies and they're always disconsolated and who are they and it's not a question of having a body which they can dress and display and enjoy but it's a body that's unstable so the problem for me is how can you create safe or stable enough bodies that have flexibility right that's how we think about minds we think about minds being safe enough not to be rigid or to be all over the show and psychotic and, but to have curiosity. And I think that's really the kind of position that I, I wish we could have. And I, I idealize we might have once had, which was the bodies that were capable of both playing and being in and representing aspects of the, of the culture, but also representing something quite individual, mm. if that makes sense. You mentioned in the book um, your experience of going to the Anthony Gormley show. Yeah. And I wonder if that was an example of um, a, a kind of forced momentary re-embodiment, or maybe that's too dramatic, uh, being forced to take on a slightly different relationship to your body. In this is the, yeah, um, I don't know how many people saw it, but this was, what, two years ago, three years ago? Anthony Gormley had a show at the Hayward. One of the rooms was designed with fog so that when you went in, you were utterly destabilized. Is that, you just couldn't see. And I, and there's also all sorts of other wonderful Anthony Gormley things in there, but what the thing that affected me about that was that for so many people, the, uh, their experience of their body is external to it. Right? They don't know when they don't know much about appetite. They know about good foods and bad foods. They don't know much about um, the ordinary business of feeling comfortable. And I think what Gormley was trying to offer, and I'm not sure he would agree with this because I think we might have even discussed it on this platform, is that with that he was bringing that destabilization of the body. He was materializing it in a very interesting way by physically making you shaky and not know where you were and where to move. At the same time as the rest of the show is showing the extraordinary ordinariness as well as extraordinariness of the, of the body. Is that what you were? Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about men's bodies. Um, and the question goes like this. 
there's different pressures and historical pressures on um, and priorities placed on the bodies of men and women. And it seems that things are changing somewhat today. But my real question is this. Perhaps in patriarchy there's different priorities placed on the bodies of men and the bodies of women, and there's a different kind of regime of body image and body image control, if you would like to put it that way, on, on men and women. But does it also then mean that men and women come to relate to their bodies differently? And does it mean that men and women are differently embodied Absolutely. in a kind of uh, phenomenological sense of body relating? Well, in my experience, yes. And in fact, I, I think it's a great source of pain and sorrow that boys are now invited to have the same or treat their bodies as something to be created and transformed. As, as women are, and, and I, I think men historically had a sort of taken-for-granted prowess in their bodies. Now, that's not to say it was unproblematic, because just in the way that girls were brought up to be nurturers and carers for others and midwives to the activity of others and feeders of others and sexual objects for both sexes, etc., boys were raised to be killers, right? So the, 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 the men's bodies were militarized. They, they weren't, there's nothing neutral about masculinity and, and men's bodies. Mm, mm. Now, that isn't really what's happening for Western bodies today. They're not being militarized in the same way. But they are being, and they're not also being, if you look in Esquire or GQ or whatever those men's magazines are, I mean, that ads for the men's clothing, whether it's Burberry or, I mean, they're just extraordinary. They are exactly like the women's. They are emaciated. Um, they have the same sort of vulnerable, but fuck you look, and you can't touch me, but I'm totally available, but hey, I'm so cool. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, all of that, all in, right? They have that. And, um, I was. I'm, I have a son. I'm very, very aware. I mean, I have a son and a daughter, but I'm very aware of when that kicked in and and how the boys were being offered images of the kind of body they were meant to have, precisely much later than girls, but precisely at the point at which they were sort of getting nervous about dating and trying to do heterosexuality, and and so I, I think. That's now starting younger, right? And we, we know if we want to take eating problems as a kind of measure of cultural distress around the body, 10% of serious eating problems are, are experienced by boys. It used to be they were disguised under things like running or compulsive running or gym going or boxing or those things. But now it's, it's quite, I mean, for the last 18, 20 years, it's quite specifically within the eating disorder stuff. So... They, they are differently embodied, but they're getting a little bit closer, right? I, I still think issues of sexual practice are very different. Um, I don't think girls binge drinking on weekends in order to do sex is quite the same as the entitlement to sex that boys feel. I mean, boys may be nervous about how you do it and how you do it, but I don't think they've got that internal taboo that is still embodied, if you like, in a lot of girls' mm. sense of selves, even though they think they should be doing it. Mm. Mm. 
Because yeah. I don't think sexuality or the erotic is given to girls and boys in the same way. I, don't, I think there, diff, there are still different prohibitions. Yeah. I want to also talk a little bit about sex, but maybe just before we go to sex, a, a kind of question of historical placement. Um, it comes through in the book, but one gets the sense, if you had to do a historicist application of some of these ideas, that we have something that you could almost call a universal, that there's a potential dissonance in one's body image or in one's relationship to one's body. And it'd be interesting to say or to ask, what is the characteristic problem of the body or the body dissonance, body image dissonance problem of a certain era? Um, today, as opposed to 40 years ago, as opposed to 150 years ago. But you did allude somewhat in the book to the question of what will be our children's generation, what will be their body preoccupations or problems? Um, I've got a quote somewhere. <coughs> but I think the problem, Derek, is that while I think you're right that there, there is this historical thing, I don't think at the level of mass disturbance. You see, I think that's different. You could say in the 50s you had psychological bodily problems, but they didn't pertain to most people. I mean, most women did not have vaginismus, but that was a major mm -hmm. body problem within psycho, you know, that people went to their doctors about, right? But not that many went, whereas you could take almost a whole, you certainly could take the cohort of my daughter's class, and every single one of them would register on a pathological eating scale. Mm. If you, you know, but you don't, we've changed the scale, so it doesn't look like that anymore because it's, the pathology is normalized. So, I mean, that is, that is a real mushrooming. Mm. So things are getting worse. Much worse. Now, when you talk about like, what's the quote from the moderns, that's what I want to know for the next generation. We I, may well I, I be really the last generation to inhabit bodies that are familiar to us. That was the quote. Well, there are these people, the transhumanists. I don't know whether they've penetrated LSE yet. Um, <laughs> have they? They're amongst us somewhere. I'm no, sure no, but I mean, they're. You know, you know, I'm on some listserv because when you, you know, when you're doing research, you get on, and there's an academic group of these transhumanists, and they really are extraordinary. They really do believe that anything you can think of is perfectly okay. So if you want to stand upside down on a building and defy gravity, that's a really good idea, and that they should, that at some point there will be a technology to solve that problem. Now, here's their argument. Their argument is, why are we so scared? of cyberizing our bodies. We already all have, not all, but you know, I wear contact lenses, you know, somebody else has got a pacemaker. What is the problem? Stem cells are rebuilding our bodies. There's so much reproductive technology. What is the big deal with the body being machine-aided? And I think the reason I mentioned labiaplasty is because it is the new big operation for young women. Yeah, breasts wasn't enough. And these kinds of technologies of transformation are, seem, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a Luddite, but do slightly worry me. I don't really think that that is a way. Those are problems of lack of embodiment. They're not, they're not a revitalized embodiment. And so when I think about the next generation, I think we're going to see troubled bodies, bringing up the next generation of troubled bodies who are available to be troubled bodies and to have all of these commercial offerings that they go towards. So I do, f I, I, I do feel worried about it. 
I mean, hopefully this will be a, a topic which will get some questions from the floor. But why don't we trust the transhumanists? I mean, the, the, if you can have a variety of safe prostheses of the body, you know, I can have an operation so I don't need to wear contact lenses. I mean, surely there's some benefits here. And surely that this is, in some ways, the way of the future. Maybe 50 years from now, people will say, this is like the argument of uh, you shouldn't build an airplane, God didn't give you Yeah, yeah, that's, and I think these are very difficult arguments to not be stupid about. They're saying something that is important, but what is it? I mean, what it seems to me is that I think they're dematerializing the body in a funny kind of way because they're saying the body as a, a, has no limits. And I suppose being an old-fashioned kind of psychoanalyst, although not according to the psychoanalysts who are me far too radical, I do think that the struggle of human beings is around the tension between limits and non-limits. It's between what, what we can imagine and what we can actually enact. That is something about being human. And you, we don't, you, so I don't think we want to be limitless. Mm, 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 but mm. hey, I, I don't know. Mm. Um, Another thing that does come through clearly, I think, in the book is this paradox of where, in some ways, we seem to be less reliant on our bodies today, in terms of whatever, physical labor, so on and so forth. But on the other hand, we seem to be ever more fragile in relationship to our body image. Is that something which characterizes here and now? Absolutely. I, I think it's very amusing that, that people go to the gym. I, I do, too. Um, not, uh, I'm thinking about masculinity now to create a body that has very little to do with their labor process, right? I mean, that it doesn't actually show. Uh, I mean, biceps are not really a, a result of sitting at a computer or, <laughs> you know, or being a professor, right? So I think it's... <laughs> What are, you, what are you trying to say? No, what I'm trying to say is, I mean, it's, it's an extension of blue jeans being, you know, where blue jeans have gone as a kind. I, I mean, I think these things are very, very interesting culturally. Um, so, what do I want to say? What were you well, asking the exactly? Quotes, the quotes that I wanted to give you, your yeah. own quote, was, ironically, as we use our bodies less, the image of masculinity for men comes to the fore all the more. So the less one uses one's body in some respects, the more the body image becomes a problem of sorts. But how could we escape body image when we've replaced... I mean, we have become our own icons, right? I mean, that we see 5,000 images a week. That is a minimum of advertised images of perfected bodies digitally transformed bodies. They, and they do everything. They lift, you know, they lengthen necks, they take and cheekbones. Everything about that you see doesn't exist, right? They, there's no reason to have started with the real person, actually. Um, how could that not affect us? We know that advertising budgets spend a lot of money, or did until, the, to create an image because it works, because it, it destabilizes something and gives us a desire. So body image is, and in, 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 we don't have it on our phones, but it, in, in Saudi Arabia, for example, there's massive imagery on the phone. There's no place we don't look where, there is, where, our, where we don't see bodies. And of course that's reconstructing and constructing a relation to the body that is very, very different mm. than mm. 
even what I saw as a youngster growing up. Mm. Can I ask you about some questions about sex? You can try. There's um, a couple of quotes that I wanted to give you. Um, Images of masculinity and femininity are shaping sexuality. Um, One also gets the sense we've already had the theme of the cultural mediation of the body, that there's some third party that mediates one's relationship with one's own body. What also becomes apparent in the book is the sense that there's a, a third party of sorts which is necessary for sex to happen. So you say at some point, sex is something women watch themselves doing with a third eye. Um, the sexual becomes an encounter with the body image. Is it today impossible? Well, I think it's a slight collapse, but yeah, if you absolutely <laughs> have to put it into a shorthand. I mean, I, I, what I'm really trying to talk about there is that for so many women, their experience of sex is both physical, visceral, delicious, but also very troublesome. And am I do it? Do I look like whoever? I mean, I'm not you know, whoever it is. I would say Sigourney Weaver, but that's because I'm too old. Do I look like the person who's doing it while I'm doing it? You know, do I represent something? Right. So that, that that's right there. Can I and be, and can I be my own sexual? Can I desire myself sexually or feel myself to be sufficiently desirable? And because that this is an argument really in the impossibility of sex more than in this book, because there is something about the erotic that I think is very problematic between mothers and daughters, and and so the sexuality or the erotic may not be something that's as available to. To, to girls and women from the inside, whereas it is sanctioned more for boys. So I think there is an eye on it, and I, I don't think I don't think guys don't also have an eye, but I think it's a different eye. Hmm. 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 Yeah, sex becomes an act which, by being performed, confers on the participants a sense of the erotic. In that respect, then, it's not so much that the erotic comes before and what naturally, as it were, follows on from that, some kind of sexual interaction, but sex becomes a means of bringing the erotic into, into being. At least that seems to be the argument. Um, what is a false body? And if there's a false body, is there an authentic body? Well, yeah, I think there is. I think there is. I, I was there, long, long time ago. There was this wonderful psychoanalyst at LSE called Donald Winnicott, and he, in describing, um, I, it's interesting to think there were once psychoanalysts at LSE. I mean, it's really a long time ago. But in describing the development of, of the baby and of the mother, he talked about the notion of a false self. Really, what he means is an undeveloped self, a self that wasn't welcomed into the world. That would be the true self. So there was, there was a false self that kind of was compliant, and and I don't want to go into the, all the details because it's quite complex, and I hope I've described it well enough here. But it was, an, it, it might be like somebody coming to therapy and saying, "I'm not the real me. The real me is something else, right? There's, I'm a false me. I'm, I don't know who I am. I'm me in this relationship, and I'm me in this, but I'm not really me. There's no consistency." And I think what I've tried to do is extend his work to say, let's look at the body, which hasn't got a kind of ongoing continuity and authenticity and stability. It's the insecure body. And what I'm working on now is how to create an oxology or a characterization of 
those different types of false body mm. states that could be equivalent to what we might have think of in psychoanalysis as neurotic, psychotic, borderline, etc., mm. but in relation mm. to the body. Mm. What's an authentic body? I think an authentic body is... Well, maybe you have one, Derek. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what age the men have to have escaped the, you know, the coruscate. The, the, I think it's feeling comfortable in it, feeling capable, whether it's ill or not ill. I mean, it, that's irrelevant. Mm. Feeling mm. that one can be, as I said earlier, playful, serious, take it for granted, not be worrying about it, not be fretting about it, not be thinking about what you're eating, whether you've done enough exercise, whether you've this, whether you've that, going to the toilet when you need to, sleeping when you need to, eating because you're hungry, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Enjoying maybe, it, basically. Maybe one last question before we take some um, contributions from the floor. Um, about three quarters of the way into the book, you talk about cutting, people who cut themselves. And you talk about the craving need for bodily intensities. Um, is, that, is that part and parcel of the fact that there's such a degree of body alienation? So the kind of bodily alienation that we discussed in relationship to sex, is that? Well, I think that's the argument I would I'd be making in, in this book. I don't think that everybody who's cutting doesn't have a body. In my conception of mm -hmm. being bodiless, mm -hmm. um, and that therefore they're attempting to mm -hmm. show themselves the materiality of their experience, mm -hmm. but I think it's a feature for certain people. And if the body has been violated, so that some salient experience is of violence towards the self and the body, there may be an enactment through the cutting that shows the way in which the body has been damaged and an attempt to show that damage. But it's not the only thing I would say about cutting. No, sure. No, I was just sort of reflecting on the fact that it seems to me that um, the more there is a degree of bodily alienation at the level of the body image, there's often in culture a kind of uh, attempt to redress that some way through these massive kind of intensities of the body. And I don't just mean cutting, you know, extreme athleticism, uh, uh, Iron Man competitions, exactly. running, this kind of, it's almost as if there's a, a need, a passion for the real, to recapture something of the real of the body in those moments. Well, is it the real or is it, a ca I, I mean, I think that's a very interesting question, what it is. And okay. people will say different things about it. But you're absolutely right. The bedrock, the bedrock of that, what they will say is, they can't really take it for granted. They can't just trust mm -hmm. it. There's a lot of work in neuroscience, and it really depends whether you like neuropsychology or not, um, about what the release of the cutter mm. and the runner and mm. the extreme sports mm. person, that kind of release is, and whether you've been um, structured in such a way that in order to get any kind of relief, you need a cortisol mm. releaser because you don't, you haven't, you haven't been primed for oxytocin because you've had stress early on in your body. So there are those kind of arguments that I, I, I remain a big question mark because I don't really know enough about mm. whether I mm. like those arguments. They seem to fit in very well. Mm. 
But it's, it's, a, it's an interesting line of discussion to say yeah. that if for much of our lives um, our body relationship is a kind of virtual thing, that maybe in those intense moments, which is not to necessarily valorize them, but those are ways that which people become rerouted, or not rerouted, regrounded yeah. uh, in bodily Or experience. they're on the search. I'm not sure they do get regrounded, but they get a different experience. Yeah. I, I think a way I would look at it is, from the perspective of a psychotherapist, working with people is that people are running up and down stairs a hundred times or not eating or whatever they're doing in the search for a body. Mm. I'm not saying that the solution, I mean anorexia is for the person who's got it a solution, it's mm. not the problem. Mm. For the weight builder it's a solution, it's not the problem, right? So yes, it, I wouldn't say they get grounding but they get something in that search. Mm. I wanted to ask some questions about infants' bodies, but maybe let's um, take some questions from the floor and um, we can come back to the okay. babies. Does anyone have any questions for Susie? There's a question right at the back. Hello. Um, Um, you obviously talk about beauty in the book and the obsession with beauty and homogenization. I don't think anybody can hear you. Can anyone hear that? Yeah. Okay, cool. You obviously talk about the obsession with beauty and homogenization in the book, but you also talk about health in the same terms, despite the fact that it might seem that it's obviously good to be healthy. And so then emphasis on health is a good and important thing. So I was wondering if you could say something on why you talk about them in the same way. Uh, the question is, why do I talk about health in the same way? Why do I have a critique of health in the same way that I have a critique of uh, the beauty industry? Actually, I don't have a critique of health. I've got a critique of the current obesity debate, which I think is very, very different. And the conceptualization of obesity as the biggest scourge that's happened to us. So it's that, I, I've got a critique of who promulgated this, that obesity is going to be the really most important thing we have to watch out for, why we've got the kinds of, um, why we've got the BMI as being this, this actual measure of, of bigness and, and rightness and wrongness, the moral attributes associated with it, um, the money being made on uh, the back of the notion of obesity, which now starts... I always use this example because I think he's so gorgeous. Now starts George Clooney is in the obese category. So under the current BMI, it's worth knowing that. But, so there is a lot in the book that is a critique of the obesity. What I, would, what I haven't called, but actually somebody else has called obesity. It's a very, very, very profitable industry. You can get a diet industry going on it. You get a lot of different bits of the food industry, which of course owns the diet industry. So it's a critique of that, and it's a critique of health planning on that basis, which ignores the massive eating problems that aren't visible. There's somebody up there. There's many people. All right, up let's there. start here, and then we'll come. Um, I had two questions, really. I, I, I think the first one is, you kind of talk about technology and the can relationship. Can you speak into the mic so they can hear? <coughs> you kind of talked about the relationship between technology and our bodies, and I was wondering what you thought about something like Second Life. Would you consider that a kind of a higher form of embodiment or a kind of a disembodiment? <laughs> um, 
I guess my second question kind of relates to, to feminism. I'm, I do research at the University of Westminster, and, and one of the big things, academically at least, is, has been this kind of shift towards finding, if you want to call it, predictors of positive body image. Um, and one of the things we're looking at is how feminism um, as an ideology um, protects women from negative body image. And a lot of the research that we've done suggests that feminism actually doesn't help. Um, if anything, feminists are probably at a worse stage than my, if you want to call them normal people or normal women. <laughs> sorry, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> but I guess that the issues that feminists face are much greater because of, of, of the, their own self-views. And I guess my question would be, is if feminists are at that stage, if feminists have difficulties with their bodies, what chance for the rest of us? And I guess... <laughs> I guess my, my, my last point, just very briefly... I, I think that's very cute. <laughs> just very briefly, I guess the, thing I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is that I find your critique, or I guess the kind of contribution of what we should do to be a bit hit and miss. I mean, I, I know we should be doing all the kind of... Yes, we should be pressurising the editors and all that kind of thing, but it seems to me that that's just treating the symptoms of, what the, of the problem rather than actually dealing with the problem. And if that really is a feminist issue, then I, I would suggest it's actually an anti-capitalist issue. I think it's the commercialization of bodies that we should be challenging. We should be challenging it at its root rather than dealing with the symptoms. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I don't really see why feminists are anything different than ordinary people. They're exactly the same. I mean, you know, feminists, you know, are no different. They come from families. They, are, they grew up in the culture. They have to manage things. At a particular moment in history where there was a big women's liberation movement, it was possible for us to contest that thing and nonchalantly wear certain kinds of clothes in a certain kind of way. But feminism lost. I, not, I, okay, we now have women in very... But the kind of feminist agenda didn't, didn't win. I, it, so I don't think we can blame the feminists for having body image issues and like the rest of the population. And I think it just means that we should get on board with endangered species in our campaign next year. Um, I, I think the argument in here is an argument against, it, it is an argument around capitalism. It isn't an argument that's, um, that's a wimpy argument, so it is that. Uh, Second Life. Well, yeah, I did find it fascinating going on Second Life in my research to discover that there are people who do live there a lot of the time. But what I found very disturbing, maybe I didn't spend enough time, is that the same forms of social relationship, which were about age and beauty and ownership, prevailed there. I didn't, I didn't think it was a relief. Now, I'm sure it's a relief for, pe- for some people who are so distressed about their body image that to live there helped them. But, but I don't know what to say beyond that it was a relief. I presume it's a relief. But I don't think it's an answer. Um, hi. Um, I thought it was really interesting what you said about the relationship between violence against women and the way women perceive their bodies and kind of saying that I was also violence against women. I, I very much agree with that. I work for the Government Equalities Office and work on violence against women. And one of the things that we're looking at at the moment is the sexualization of young girls and how that um, enables violence to be committed against them. Um, but I thought maybe one of the things that links all of these issues, and 
links violence against women being considered both kind of physical violence that's committed against women maybe by men in, in a very obvious physical way being hit and also the violence that women commit against their own bodies in the form of eating disorders is a sense of disempowerment and a lack of control over their own bodies. And I think give, going back to what um, the gentleman just said, it's quite ironic given that we're supposedly witnessing like, 20 years of women becoming empowered yet we seem to be incredibly disempowered in our relationships with our bodies. Yeah, I, I mean, I, look, I think feminism really which is, was, and continues to be very deeply challenging. And I don't think it's an accident that the aesthetic, as women have wanted to take up more space in the world, the aesthetic has got smaller and smaller and smaller, rather than more and more various, right? And that what feminism is translated into is glass ceilings rather than the transformation of work in the family and the term. So all of that stuff is absolutely, that's what I mean by saying we, look, we haven't won. We, we've definitely lost. And, and at least in my generation, when we went into new situations, and I don't mean to harp on about my generation, but it's a very different thing. We went in with the sense of feminists behind us. Now it's all been reprivatized, so that when a woman is arguing for something, whether it's around domestic labor at home or in the job, it's, it's, she's doing it as an individual, and she doesn't have the groundswell of a movement behind her. So that is very, very different, and, it, and that's awful. And as for the sexualization of girls, I think one of the really insidious difficulties that has increased and will increase more is girls' and women's own representation to themselves as needing to be the way we imagine we need to be. And the fact that we now have high heels for babies is so shocking to me because it's already representing femininity as something that is about performance. Enough said. Following on from the issue of sexualization of the body, I was wondering um, who is to blame or who has, who's responsible for this trend? Isn't it the generations that went before us? Because as you said, and as we mentioned, the, there was a feminist movement which obviously failed. So isn't it our mother's generation that kind of neglected something and failed in a way? I think, it, I think in a way it, it's quite interesting because... I think you're onto something. That the generation who went through things collectively had, and they were only, you know, it punched above its weight, feminism. I mean, it wasn't, didn't involve all women, for God's sake. It involved a cohort across the world. Were very concerned to change the relations, the emotional relations, the psychological relations, the physical relations, the relations of violence, of power, of all of those things. But maybe they weren't so interested in what it might mean to bring up emotionally robust kids, right? I think that, and they were then assaulted because feminism got hijacked by superwoman. You know, big shoulders and you can make it and you can be everything you want to be, all of those kinds of things. So there was an enormous 
there's capacity in the culture to, to kind of try to meet some piece of something and then do something else with it. And I think women got caught up in that. So, yeah, we could blame the moms, but it was also a cultural story that was going on. And I think for a sort of split generation of mothers who themselves didn't have the chance to express their own ambition, they then foisted that ambition on their daughters, thinking, okay, my daughters should be able to do this, but not necessarily giving them the emotional equipment. I mean, these are not necessarily feminists, right? But giving them the emotional equipment or the tools by which they might collectively take this stuff on. So it was left, and that's why I use the word reprivatized. That's why I think it is something that got in the, in the post-Thatcherite settlement. We, women became, young women became individual again, and, the, and so did their moms as, as individual entrepreneurs and little centers. Um, can we have a question from you, and perhaps from you, and also from you at the back, if possible? Um, I guess my question kind of leads. Where on are you? Oh, there. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> um, my question kind of leads on from this lady. Um, I'm just kind of thinking about the way um, that society and the media has these kind of thin, idealized images, and I was wondering, in a sense, is it? Um, the media who is creating a body insecurity, or are they simply responding to what we want to see? Is it a chicken or an egg situation? Well, I, th I think we now have a highly developed aesthetic that is, that is quite narrow. Um, and so all of our eyes, I mean, when we see pictures of even the actors from my generation, you know, not my generation, but what if we see, when I grew up, of course, there was Sophie Loren or Marilyn Monroe. Those had a very different physicality. So, but those didn't predominate in the same way because visual culture wasn't the same way. So of course we've created different images and we live in a time of plenty and so we've created an aesthetic of, of not both of women, of both women disappearing, but also of appearing not to need because God forbid women should need anything. So. That then gets reproduced, but they, you, all you need to do is look at a really clever art director, like um, Dazed did fantastic. I always use this example because it's so compelling to me. They did unbelievably clever shoots of paraplegic people that were so stylish and sexy that you were kind of in one issue of the magazine, completely drawn to it. So there is no reason that you can't have variety be sexy and glamorous. It's just that we haven't changed that aesthetic yet. We haven't fought hard enough to do that. Huh. I'm not as courageous as the gentleman down there, but, but I will ask a devil's advocate. Can you hear me now? Um, I'm old enough to remember when Barbie first came out. Yeah, she was 50 <laughs> and, this year. And I remember, I, although I was pretty young at the time, I remember that there was a certain amount of concern and, and uh, hand-wringing about that. And I'm wondering, is it possible to overstate what you're speaking to now? Because the world didn't come to an end when Barbie came out. And um, I'm, just, I'm just wondering if it's possible that this is simply a point in a line and 
and isn't the great concern that, uh, that I'm hearing. I don't think Barbie would be a concern if there was only Barbie. Right? I, I mean, I certainly didn't have any difficulty giving my daughter Barbie. Because partly, I think it's important that they become part of, they know how to deal with Barbies, right? Um, I don't mean that this a woman doesn't look like this, but because they, so they could become a site of imagination rather than as a site of the real. But the problem is that isn't true anymore, right? China now, I think it's in Shanghai, has now an eight, maybe it's Beijing, has an eight-story Barbie shop where, you know, Barbies and Kens can meet and encounter one another. This is in China. So I think there is something to worry about. Not about Barbie per se, but about the barbification of the culture. What does it mean when you have city lawyers that look like Barbies? And that is a critical piece of them working in one of the Golden Circle firms. I don't think that's so okay. Because I don't think it's just a site of joy. Or, hey, it's no big deal. I think they have to get that uniform on. And that uniform costs a lot. I don't mean economically. I mean psychically. Um, could we have a question from you, and from you, and from you, and from you? Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, you Pretend you're a rock star. Those mics don't work otherwise. Okay, I can manage them. Um, so you talked about the limits of the body. And you talked about, you said, um, that there have to be some limits um, in relation to um, engineering our bodies and changing them. So my question to you is the following. So a hundred years ago, people didn't even imagine that they would be able to live until the mid-70s. So there has been a tremendous change. In, there has been an, a, a, an extension of our body's longevity. Um, so in your opinion, who is the right person to set the limits? And what are those limits? Well, it's a great question, but it's not something I'm in a position to answer. I mean, that ought to be part of public discourse. I, I, I mean, yeah, I can't be an arbiter for that. I, I have no way of responding to that, except I, I just simply don't. It's a lovely question, but I... I, I no, because you said you criticize the fact that changing your body might have a like, direction, that you might have a Well, some of them, I, I mean, I'd really like to talk to a historian of, of, of life and know, you know I, I, I mean, I'm too ignorant to know how the people who survived, how long did they live for? Okay, now we know people are living a lot longer. But, so that is true. But that I doesn't, I, I don't think this is the area I can really discuss and, and pontificate on. You know, I just feel uncomfortable with the notion. I don't particularly want to be 150 years old myself with n number of prosthesis. I just don't. And I kind of find it interesting growing older. I don't like all of it, but I like an awful lot of it. And I suppose because the territory I work in is psychoanalysis and is about meaning giving, I'm interested in the meaning that we give to our lives at particular points. And what it means to be Look, in New York, I can feel illegal because I haven't been, you know, lifted from tush to 
toe, whatever it is, from top to bottom, right? I think that's weird. Okay, they think I'm weird, I think they're weird. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think there is something that might be painful in a culture that privileges youthful looks. There's something very painful about aging, but there's also something very interesting about being my age that is a whole lot more interesting than the distractions to do with I'm not supposed to have a face like this anymore. So, but these are my issues. I think those things as somebody who works with people who are trying to make real meaning out real, who are trying to make meaning out of that, is struggling with. I don't just want to reconstruct all the time. I actually want to see what it means to be. Sorry if that's... Hello. Um, okay, so I have a two-part question. And the first part is that one of the problems that we face I think it's a conflation between the body and the self, right? And the body is seen as a marker of desirable or negative characteristics. If we have an authentic body, if we get to a point where we have an authentic body, what then is the relationship between the body and the self? Where does the self, I guess, get located? And then the second part of that question is, can a body that's been marked by the culture, say through a massive amount of cosmetic surgery from tush to, to toes, right? Um, then be an authentic body if that person then feels that they're living comfortably in that body? Okay. I think what I would want to say is that for an individual, that might work, to take your second question first. There may be some people for whom that helps them sufficiently that it solves the problem. Okay? And they feel they have a body and they're content. Okay? I certainly wouldn't want to disturb their notion that that's what they feel. Particularly with the modern rhetoric of empowerment, which is what how plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery is sold in the States. You deserve it. Why would you deprive yourself? This is an act of empowerment. You know, okay, women, get to it. All right? Um, so, yeah, works for them fine. Where does the self go get located if the body is okay? Um, well, Hopefully, you, we would be getting close to a notion that we couldn't divide these categories up. I think what's happening now that worries me is that where we used to see that, I'm going back to the beginning of when I was, Derek and I were talking, is where we used to see the self as affecting the body, I think what we're now seeing is that body distress is now affecting a sense of self. And so these bifurcations are even more increased. And I don't really think, I'm only discussing the body qua body because we need to discuss something that hasn't been looked at in this way. I don't really want to discuss it because I think it's mad, right? My speech production is both a physical, emotional, and mental activity. So there is no division between those two. So that's where I would hope we would get to, is that we would have we would be corporeal beings. We'd be embodied. It, and we're all embodied, but we'd be embodied in a way that was much more straightforward. So I don't have an answer, really. You had a question? Um, before answering the question, or asking the question, I can actually answer what you were saying about life expectancy 
Oh, great. Victorian life expectancy for a 20-year-old man was 68 years. But what about the ones who made it no, past? That's, if you got to 20, you were expected to live to 68. Mm -hmm. And what if you made it to 50? You were presumably expected to live probably in the same region, I'm afraid I don't know. See, that's what interests me. If you really made it through those years, how long did you live? That's... But it's actually, okay. it's life expectancy for a 20-year-old man today is not that much better, as I understand it. So we've gained maybe 10, 15 years, but not an amazing amount. Um, I actually, I have many questions, but I'll go with the oddest one first, which is, um, do you have an opinion, are you familiar with utilitarian transhumanists? The it, which trans utilitarian transhumanists. See, I probably don't know that little subgroup mm. of the transhumanists. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. You know, there are sex everywhere, for God's sake. But you know, I mean, you about the left and the feminist ones, not the transhumanist ones. I'm well, curious what is theirs? Um, touching upon the idea that men are going to the gym to build biceps, and biceps are not a natural um, requirement for working at a keyboard. Um, utilitarian transhumanism is essentially people saying that. Uh, body should be a tool suited to its task and if you have an unusual task it is technically feasible and could be desirable to adapt the body to that task so if we have an example of I can't remember where he's from there is um, a disabled runner who has essentially power striders built onto the ends of his amputated legs there is another gentleman who has no left arm and in place has what could be essentially considered a grapnel hook who goes climbing with it. Um, it seems that people going to the gym to build their biceps and so on, they're not pursuing a utilitarian goal with their bodies. So is a utilitarian goal desirable? Well, are you asking me to kind of categorize in moral categories, which is okay, which is kosher and which uh, isn't of, the, no. of, the of these kinds of things. No, I, was, I only touch upon the utilitarian, utilitarian transhumanists because they're the most extreme sort of end of the spectrum. Is treating your body as a useful tool and adapting it to its purpose a desirable goal? Should that be what, or is that... Well, I think a the, prob I don't know. the problem is that you're still then treating your body as an object, which you have to fashion in a certain way. And well, the question is, what constitutes, what is it? At the moment, something about the external structure seems to be what we're focused on. Um, I suppose from a reductionist point of view, um, bodies and minds are a process. They're not an entity. They are a process that is continually being altered and renewed. Um, what, what is your take on why and how people choose to adapt and alter bodies? Well, you, I think why, you're why is because they feel very unhappy in their bodies because we've created a situation in which body instability mm. or health, hatred is rife. It, so is the, it is the baseline now. And so, therefore, people aren't nuts. They want to look after themselves. They want to do things to transform that. And they choose things that are available within the cultural nexus that they're in. 
Sorry, can we, you could maybe take it up with Susie at the end. I just was hoping to give someone else one last, uh, is it a question here? Uh, hello. I was very struck by a comment you made about the sense of empowerment that came from being a feminist. Uh, so I must admit to being of that generation myself. And uh, one of the things I struggle with is how to help uh, my own daughters and certainly my students recapture some of that power because I think they are very much alone and it worries me terribly. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't, actually. <laughs> I mean, not in a proper way. I have lots of things I could say, and I'm delighted to meet lots of young women who suddenly feel they fit when they meet with other young women, and they have a discourse that is critical rather than moaning, if I could put, put it that way. Um, and I meet those people, I come across them in the environmental movement, I come across them in the group that I'm part of, anybody. My daughter seems to come across them in her classes at university in the, doing gender studies. I mean, she's not doing it only gender studies. I, but, yeah, but do I... I think the stuff around the body has the potential because it is so personal and yet so deeply political to engage women and to engage young women to dare to risk things together. But how exactly to do it, I don't know. That would, that's where we need to put all of our heads together. Can I just ask one last question, and maybe we could, sorry to abuse privilege. You mentioned pain in the book. Yeah. You don't develop an awful lot, but I was wondering in terms of what we'd spoken tonight about uh, the difficulties of alienating body image, body imagery, and the prospects of cultural mediation which seem to get in the way of people's relationship to their bodies. Is pain not some way around this? I mean, there's the famous Wittgenstein quote where he says, uh, there's no sign I can exchange for my pain. And we touched on it a little bit with intensities of the body, these excesses of enjoyment, whatever you'd like to call it. Is that one way of... Well, you see, I think the argument I had in Fifi, Fat as a Feminist Issue, is that women in their imagination were wearing their pain on their bodies. But now everybody's passing for looking as they're meant to look, hmm. and therefore they're not wearing that pain in the same way, if that's what you mean. And I, I think I've moved away from thinking that we write our pain on our bodies. Right? I think the pain of our bodies may be written on ourselves now, if I can go with that. And the thing that I was writing about in relation to pain in the book, which is a little bit to do with the transhumanist, but it isn't really, was to do with the development of drugs to do away with painful memories. And the fact that we, we now have technologies being offered that are about trying to do away with emotional history and emotional story that is about pain. and and. And then I link it to actually um, Stan Cohen, who was an LSE professor here for many years, his work on torture and pain. I mean, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a run through the whole thing. So but the question is that pain has its purposes. It has, it's a very important 
thing, and maybe we need to find ways to articulate it and not wear it in places where it is. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Last, last question. Sorry, if we could just take from you, and then perhaps we should end. Thank you. <laughs> just. Um, there's obviously a huge variety of ways that we adjust our bodies, um, ranging from just wearing makeup to labiaplasty or whatever, so various extremes. But um, some of the most widespread, uh, you know, in Western uh, cultures do involve some pain. So whether it's, you know, ear piercing or eyebrow plucking or whatever, I mean, they are slightly painful and very, very widespread. I suppose my question is, at what point... Um, do you think this body adjustment becomes pathological? Well, I think the fact that schoolgirls are now not eating during the week, let's just take that so that they can eat at weekends. That's pretty pathological, but it's been normalized. Right? Um... I think there's a very interesting shift between hairdressing things and those kinds of things used to help, used to hurt, and now you go and you're, they're being, you're being pampered. So there's been a switch in the notion of what that is. And I think that switch there has to do with internalized masochism and, and misogyny being transformed into, no, hey, excuse me, you want to be looked after, because we're not used to being looked after. But I don't, I don't know where you draw the scale, because the culture's moving so fast, in a way. And I really would hate anybody to leave today thinking that I don't think we should have fun and decorate our bodies and, and take delight. I just think it's very, very difficult to do that without the taint that exists inside of that. And when I say taint, I probably mean the pathology that the culture offers and which we, as cultural actors, engage with. Um, thank you all for coming. The next talk in this series will be on the 12th of February. Uh, Yanis Stavrakakis will be talking about capitalism and fantasy. Could I ask you just to say one last thank you to Susie thank for... Thank you. Lovely